It's my understanding that as a congregation you've come to Lord's Day 41 in the Catechism, which is about the seventh commandment. So in connection with that, we'll read from two passages, um, starting with Proverbs 5. And there we'll hear a father giving advice to his son in order to keep him from adultery. That's Proverbs 5. This is God's Word. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Lend your ear to my understanding, that you may preserve discretion and your lips may keep knowledge. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps lay hold of hell. Lest you ponder her path of life. Her ways are unstable, you do not know them. Therefore hear me now, my children, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Remove your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. Lest you give your honor to others, and your years to the cruel one. Lest aliens be filled with your wealth, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner, And you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed. And say how I have hated instruction and my heart despised correction. I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to those who instructed me. I was on the verge of total ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. Drink water from your own cistern and running water from your own well. Should your fountains be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be only your own, and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times, and always be enraptured with her love. For why should you, my son, be enraptured by an immoral woman? and be embraced in the arms of a seductress. For the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. His own iniquities entrap the wicked man, and he is caught in the cords of his sin. He shall die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly he shall go astray. Let's also turn to Matthew 5, verses 27 to 30. This is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he addresses some of the commandments very specifically. And here in Matthew 5, verses 27 to 30, he addresses adultery and the seventh commandment. That's Matthew 5, verse 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. 
Let's now turn to Lord's Day 41 for our summary of God's Word this afternoon. As I mentioned earlier, Lord's Day 41 deals with the seventh commandment. We read there, what does the seventh commandment teach us? That all unchastity is cursed by God. We must therefore detest it from the heart and live chaste and disciplined lives, both within and outside of holy marriage. Does God in this commandment forbid nothing more than adultery and similar shameful sins? Since we body and soul are temples of the Holy Spirit, it is God's will that we should keep ourselves pure and holy. Therefore, he forbids all unchaste acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may entice us to unchastity. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, it hardly needs to be pointed out that adultery and sexual immorality are all around us. We encounter it on TV, in movies, in the lyrics of music, and even in our books. We see it on billboards and in the mall. We find it on the sides of buses. And we find it especially on the internet. Pornography is a market worth tens of billions of dollars. Our culture is saturated with it. So it comes as no surprise that the seventh commandment is a joke to the world. The commandment isn't just being broken in our society, it's being smashed to pieces. And it's nothing new. It's been like this since the beginning. In Leviticus, we find laws about all sorts of different immoral behaviors. In Romans, the Apostle Paul speaks about God giving up man to their debased minds to do what ought not to be done. And yet, this isn't just something out there. These are things that also live in the church. Things that we encounter and struggle with. Failing to obey the seventh commandment is not something that we have to go far to find. We only have to look inside at our own hearts. No, the weight of guilt and shame is not an unfamiliar burden among us. You may even be at that point of where you feel like giving up. But the challenge of this commandment means we do have to deal with our sin. And yet we do not need to give up because there is light at the end of the tunnel. There is a hope that we can hold on to. The theme for this afternoon's sermon is God calls us to chastity by cursing adultery. We'll see first his curse against adultery, his call for chastity, and finally his comfort for the heavy laden. First then we'll see God's curse against adultery. God's command in Exodus 20 is you shall not commit adultery. And from 
Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we can see that this covers all sins leading up to adultery. Our Lord Jesus makes it even clearer, though. Cutting through to the heart of it, as we read earlier, he says, You have heard that it was said, Do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You may have noticed that Jesus is speaking only to men here. That's not a surprise to us. It largely is a deeper struggle for men than for women. But that being said, lust is no respecter of gender or marital status. We all have eyes and imaginations aplenty. Both men and women struggle silently with these sins. Jesus says lustful intent is adultery. That means a strong desire for something immoral, something forbidden. And it's lust that lies at the root of adultery. That doesn't mean that physical desire is wrong, physical attraction. It's the desire, the second glance, the mulling it over in our minds. Jesus says this is adultery. And it's the desire that gives birth to sin and the sin that leads to death. The Apostle Paul cuts even deeper than lustful intent. In Ephesians 5, he says, Sexual immorality and all impurity must not even be named among you. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. So it's not just about what we watch on our screens in secret, or even the temptation to let our gaze linger where it shouldn't. The seventh commandment is also about inappropriate humor and impure thoughts. God takes it all very seriously. Out of all the commandments that the Catechism addresses, it's only here in the seventh that it says that God curses disobedience. It says all unchastity is cursed by God. That means any form of sexual immorality and impurity, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, anything that might lead us to unchastity. In the Old Testament, adultery was dealt with by stoning. For other immoral behavior, a person would be cut off from God's people. Well, Paul brings that home to us in Ephesians. You may be sure of this, he says, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That means being cut off from God. All of these warnings land heavy on those who are caught up in sin. But we're not hiding anything from God. We read that in Proverbs. A man's ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all his paths. So why is it that God curses adultery? Why does he hate unchastity so much? Well, it's because adultery attacks marriage. God instituted marriage to reflect his covenant with his people. It's the image that Christ uses to describe his relationship with his bride, the church. And adultery tears that apart. 
God designed us to be in loving relationship with each other, especially man and wife. But lust shows contempt for that design. It reduces our neighbor to a mere object, to something that's consumable. This is a completely distorted version of marriage. Yet in all of this, let's not miss what's going on behind the scenes. You see, it's because of the importance of marriage and family that Satan attacks them so strongly. He knows that family is a building block of life and church and society. And so he puts his crowbar, first of all, to these foundations of life. We need to realize that we're not just fighting against our flesh. It can feel that way as we fight against our desires and lusts and habits that we've formed. But we have more sworn enemies than our flesh. And the devil is no fool. He is actively and intensively attacking us where he can do the most damage. And so he attacks the leaders of the church. What better way to destroy it? He targets pastors and elders and heads of families. He targets youths and teenagers to get them in his grip early. This is a war. We're not just fighting desires within. We are fighting against a focused strategy to tear apart the family and the church. There is some method to the madness of temptations that we face. And part of Satan's strategy is convincing us that we'll find great pleasure in what's forbidden. Just like the fruit that he pointed out to Eve. But as we read in Proverbs 5 earlier, drink water from your own cistern, from your own well. Satan tries his best to convince us otherwise, but it does not satisfy to drink from another well. It does not quench your thirst to scroll through images on your phone. Instead, it leaves you empty and dried up. It leaves a bitter taste in your mouth. It is a completely distorted version of what God has intended for marriage. Brothers and sisters, nothing will satisfy that thirst except the one to whom marriage points to, to the one who gives us his own living water. If we've been left empty and dried up from forbidden water, then there is water that is refreshing and life-giving that will fill you up. The water that Christ gives becomes in us a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And everyone who drinks of this water will never be thirsty again. This was Jesus' promise. And so Jesus calls, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And that leads us to our second point, where we'll see God's call for chastity. In Matthew 5, verses 27, after Jesus has focused the seventh commandment on lustful intent, then we read, is rather shocking demand. If your right eye causes you to sin, then pluck it out and cast it from you. 
For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. How are we supposed to think about this? Can Jesus literally mean what he says? Well, before we minimize what he's saying, note that Jesus chose these words deliberately. He's telling us that sin must be dealt with radically. Think about it. If cutting out your eye is what it really took to prevent your being destroyed by sin, if that was your only option, don't you think that's what Jesus would want? He says it's better that you lose one part of your body than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Isn't any loss, no matter how painful, preferable to the total lostness of hell? Now Jesus is talking about the heart, of course. It would not do us any good if we cut out our eyes and we did not deal with the lust in our hearts. But let's not miss his radical call. Someone has put it this way. There are too many whole-bodied people going to hell and not enough spiritual amputees going to heaven. There are too many whole-bodied people going to hell and not enough spiritual amputees going to heaven. There are too many people not taking Jesus seriously about the seriousness of this sin. Because desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So what drastic measure will it take? Maybe it will take avoiding the movies, getting rid of your internet connection, throwing your phone out, or as Jesus says, tearing out your eye. Whatever it takes, is it not preferable to the total lostness of hell? Jesus is calling for radical obedience. We read together earlier from Proverbs 5, where we hear the instruction of a father to his son. And we're given the imagery of an adulteress who represents sexual immorality. The father warns his son, keep your way far from her. And don't go near the door of her house. And yet this same father, a couple chapters later, observes a foolish young man who did just that. This young man chose to pass close by the street corner where she hung out. He chose to walk there in the evening at the time of night and darkness. That's foolishness. As the Father said, keep your way far from her. Do whatever it takes. Lock up your computers and phones with accountability software so that you don't even go near the door of her house. Or perhaps if you're dating then maybe you ought to agree beforehand not to be alone together at the time of night and darkness. Because how much harder it is when, like the foolish young man, you walk past that corner of temptation when you're at your weakest. We read in Proverbs 6, Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched. 
if we allow ourselves to linger, feeding the, the lustful desires that grow in our hearts, then we will end up like that foolish young man. And we read, all at once he follows her, like an ox going to the slaughter, like a bird rushing into the snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. Brothers and sisters, let's be attentive to wisdom. Let us incline our ears to understanding. The father told his son in Proverbs 6, bind these words on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they'll lead you. When you sleep, they'll watch over you. And when you wake, they'll talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way to life. To keep you from the immoral woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. This is a war we must fight together. Temptation is all around us. Our flesh is weak. How then do we stand a chance if we're leading each other into sin by our flirting, our coarse joking, our immodest dress? If radical for you means finding new friends to hang out with, then we need to take Jesus' warning seriously. We need to talk to others about our struggles and listen as well. To be honest with each other and ask good questions. Don't just confess your struggles and feel better. Repent and change. Don't just sympathize, admonish each other. Follow up with your brothers and sisters. Pray together and remind each other of the gospel. Be accountable to each other. Jesus does call for radical obedience. He even told the same crowd, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the, of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And this can be when we feel like giving up. But that strength will not come from ourselves. We need to look elsewhere. And that's where we come to our third point, God's comfort for the heavy laden. In Matthew 5, Jesus calls us to chastity, to radical obedience. But Jesus knows that the sin comes from within our hearts. He was never one to stand far off telling people to do this and to stop doing that. That's not why He came. No, Jesus came to call sinners. That is, people who can't obey His commands and who humbly recognize that. His call to chastity is, is ultimately the call to find our hope and confidence outside of ourselves. Jesus calls us to Him, to seek Him, to lay our burdens on Him, and to find rest in Him when we're weary and heavy laden to rest in His forgiveness. And it's only then that we can begin to obey His radical call. Our catechism indirectly points to that as well. In question answer 109, we confess that we're temples of the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are dwelling places of the Holy Spirit, and therefore our bodies belong to God. 
That's not just a warning. There is a deep source of comfort in those words. We, body and soul, belong to God. The catechism is pointing back to the familiar words of Lord's Day 1. I am not my own, but belong with body and soul both in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who sent His Spirit. Yes, the Holy Spirit not only gives us assurance that we are Christ, but also works in us to make us heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. This is where we'll find strength to resist the desires of our flesh and Satan. By the Spirit's renewal, we do grieve with heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sins, and more and more to hate our sins and flee from them. But Christ's renewal also means coming to new life, having a heartfelt joy in God through Christ, and a love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. Nobody can, in this life can keep God's commandments perfectly. Left to ourselves, we could only despair. No, our hope comes from the fact that Jesus Christ has already paid for all of our sins. That we stand forgiven. And our hope comes from the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells within us. We may confess with earnest purpose that we do begin to live according to all of God's commandments. We do seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. So let us seek the Lord. Let us seek the grace of the Holy Spirit that we may continue to be renewed more and more after God's image. It's true that Satan tempts us with things that are desirable. We're tempted by pornography or intimacy with our fiancé because these things promise great pleasure. As does a second glance or immoral thoughts. But Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They shall see God. We may find our hope and confidence in the one who promises the far greater, more abiding pleasure of knowing God. All Satan offers is the fleeting pleasure of seeing forbidden flesh. But Jesus promises that the pure in heart will see God himself. What pleasure this is. And when we recognize that we do not need to depend on ourselves, that our strength doesn't come from within, then we can set our sights higher than just keeping out sin. We may begin to walk by the Spirit. Because there is so much more to loving our neighbor than just avoiding adultery and lust. It says in 1 Timothy 5, Don't rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Obedience to the seventh commandment means treating each other with all purity. These are your brothers and sisters. Not potential objects to be consumed, but precious siblings to be cherished. And when we find our rest and hope in Jesus Christ, 
and our assurance in the Holy Spirit, then this is where we may set our sights. So let us encourage each other and build each other up. Fight the temptation to take a second glance and instead look on each other with love. But more than that, fix your eyes on Christ. Find in Him your strength. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Until that day, when he returns on the clouds, and every eye will gaze at him as our only desire. Amen.